So this morning we're going to be in Matthew 21. If you want to turn there with me. And I wanted to set up the scene for you before we begin. If you remember in chapter 20, which Emma teached on last week, Jesus has told his disciples that he'd be going up to Jerusalem to be condemned by the chief priest and will be mocked, flogged, and crucified, but will rise on the third day. Also in chapter 20, Jesus healed two blind men who proclaimed him to be the son of David. The Gospel of Matthew has, thread, has this thread weaved throughout that Jesus is the promised king of the Jews. In chapter 9, Jesus gave sight to two blind men, but strictly warned them not to tell anyone. In chapter 20, Jesus performs the same miracle, but gives no warning. His time has come to be known by all. This is what we see in chapter 21. Who is this king? I'll read verses 1 to 11, and then we'll pray. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning to be able to gather um, and to be able to um, just hear your word um, read. And I pray that you help me just to um, speak with clarity. And um, I pray that you also just calm my heart. Um, Father, I pray for our hearts that would just come to adore you through this chapter. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 21 is the beginning of the end. Some of us here may know this event to be the start of Holy Week, and specifically this entry is the start, or is um, Palm Sunday. This is the start of the last week of Jesus' life. Another note, this is also the start of Passover. Our passage starts off with Jesus needing a mode of transportation to enter Jerusalem. Though we know Jesus is perfectly capable and willing to walk into Jerusalem, Matthew points out that he needed to ride in on a donkey because it was to fulfill scripture. Jesus rides in on a donkey that was prophesied would be available to him 500 years prior to this moment. Another reason why Jesus needed to enter in on a donkey was to show what kind of king he is. Look with me to verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, or say to the inhabitants of Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, which can mean lowly, bowed down, or even full of suffering, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This king isn't coming in puffed up, surrounded by regal people, but instead with meekness, surrounded by lowly Galileans. 
He is the humble king. He is gentle and compassionate as we have seen throughout this gospel. Why does this king need to enter in with humility? We will soon see that it takes a great deal of humility to die the way he did. What greater act of humility is there than to redeem undeserving sinners? He is also the peaceful king. In biblical times, when kings went to war, they needed an animal with strength, speed, and stealth. And a horse was exactly that. A king would be feared when they rode in on a horse. But sometimes, when a king wasn't headed for battle, he would come in on a donkey. This showed he was coming peacefully. He wasn't there for war. We see here Jesus entering Jerusalem not only peacefully, but to bring peace. Peace between who? Peace between man and God. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus, our King. We have peace with God. Our salvation is secure, and we do not need to fear the wrath of God. For those who have not put their faith in Jesus, he is still figuratively riding this donkey today. He can, be, he can bring peace between you and God. But do not wait to surrender yourselves wholly to him. Turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Chapter 19. We'll read verses 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and the of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can turn back to Matthew twenty one. This, com- this humble king is also a righteous and just king who will judge and make war on all those who oppose him. He will ride in on a horse one day. Do not wait. You don't want to see Jesus coming in on a horse. Repent. Sing with the crowd, Hosanna to the son of David. This king right now is a peaceful, humble king. Our passage goes on to show that the disciples obeyed Jesus' request and a crowd has started proclaiming Jesus as the son of David. What once was an inkling and a few people proclaiming Jesus to be the long-awaited heir of King Jesus, or King David, now a crowd of maybe thousands have started shouting that Jesus is that heir. The word Hosanna can mean save now or save, and the title son of David can also be interpreted as Messiah. So we see here the crowd shouting in a sense, save us Messiah. It would be quite something to hear that shout of praise, only for it to be replaced a few days later by shouts of condemnation. Crucify him is what will soon be heard through this humble king's ears. 
The crowd also says, Hosanna in the highest, which can, be, which can be seen as the people praising God in the highest heavens for sending this Messiah and also asking God for deliverance. In verse 10, it says Jerusalem was stirred up by Jesus' coming. In Matthew 2, 3, it says Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. People who are in, who are in opposition with Jesus are disturbed by his coming. The little word here is quake. The city quaked like it would literally quake on Good Friday. Let's read verses 12 to 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The first place we see Jesus go when he enters Jerusalem is the house of God, his house. Instead of people worshiping and giving praise to God, Jesus sees what John describes as a house of trade. Maybe some of you ventured out to the grocery store on Thanksgiving and imagine having all of Georgetown in the superstore. Everyone's trying to get a live turkey. It has to be live for the sake of this passage. And you want a nice plump one. Not some chicken that was eating grass. And you want, and some other lady sees the same turkey that you just saw and wants it too. But the seller then hears a lady from Acton behind you. And he knows he can get more out of her than he can from you too. Because he knows the exchange rate is better. And it would be more profitable for him. This was the main aim of these sellers. It wasn't to promote thanksgiving. It wasn't to help people to give reverence to God. It was to gain a revenue for themselves. So let's go back to the grocery store. You got your bird. Now you want to praise God, but there's nowhere for you to stop and do that. There's too many people in the way. You'll get run over by a grocery cart. You can't go to the pharmacy aisle because you're a Gentile and you're not allowed there. The place where the people were selling was in the Gentile court. To give you a visual... It goes, holy of holies, the holy place, the court of the priests where the altar and the sacrifices were made, the court of Israel, the court of the women, and then the court of the Gentiles. These people were so far removed from the place of God. And that is where Jesus is standing. He could see there was no way Gentile converts could worship God. This is why Jesus is angry. The sanctuary for the Gentiles was overcrowded by haggling people and livestock. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, when he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and accuses what is most likely the chief priests and the scribes to be robbers. Jesus is saying they aren't only robbing people of money because of the high exchange rates and the prices of sacrifices, but also robbing people of the ability to worship God, and more importantly, robbing God of the worship he is due. These teachers of the day were causing people to be part of a man-made legalistic religion. Legalism only takes extorts, and is harsh. This was a den of legalism, a den of works. 
It kept the Jewish eyes on the horizontal. Get the sacrifice. So Jesus drives them out and brings in the blind and the lame. He heals them. He gives. He's gentle. And this causes children and most likely the lowly people he's just healed to praise him. To worship God. A house of prayer. Jesus restores worship in the Gentile court. And you could even say the Gentiles are in the Holy of Holies. They are in the presence of God. We need to remember Jesus is a Jew. He could have gone straight to the court of Israel, but he didn't. He saw a problem and he had compassion. God's plan was always for the Gentiles to worship him through the testimony of the Israelites. Jesus makes that clear in this event. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. One day we will stand before Jesus and be completely healed not only by our physical infirmities, but of our sin. Every tribe, nation, female, male, Jew, and Gentile will sing a new song. Revelations 12 says we will be singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. However, the chief priests and scribes are indignant or resenting Jesus for what Matthew describes, the incredible things he has done. Isn't that a bit childish? Hudson was sick a little while ago, and we tried to give him some honey to soothe his throat. He was so upset from having this cough that when we tried to give him the honey, he refused. He couldn't see that what we were offering him was good. Similarly, the teachers refused to see what what was good. Jesus just gave sight to the blind and restored disabled people. How amazing and good is that? The temple leader's heart were too hard and too stubborn. They were also upset that this man who overturned their tables didn't stop the children from singing praises to him, but boldly uses scripture to state the reason. Verse 16 says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. This is from Psalm 8-2. That was specifically a song of praise to God. When Jesus uses this as his defense, he's saying that he is God. He is worthy of the praise of these children. And that's all we get. He just leaves. You're almost expecting a showdown. Don't worry, it'll happen real soon. Before we get there, we see this humble king make a scene. Seems a little less humble, don't you think? Couldn't he do it in a nicer way? This humble king is a righteous, just king as well. He has authority. He will not allow idolatry in his house. He is worthy and the only person that ought to be worshipped. Jesus sets straight that the focus should always be on him, and he will not be a passive about this truth. Let's read verses 18 to 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Our text starts off with seeing Jesus hungry, or maybe as a millennial will say, hangry. (laughs) 
Jesus is looking for some fruit to snack on, and upon seeing none on a tree that should have had some, lashes out and curses a fig tree. But we know in the book of Matthew that, one, Jesus doesn't need food to control his emotions. We saw him be hungry for 40 days and 40 nights and be tempted by the devil and not give in. He can command stones to become bread. He can feed not only four, but 5,000 people from a few loaves of bread and fish. This isn't really about Jesus being hungry. Coming off the heels from the cleansing of the temple, this fig tree represents a fruitless temple. We just saw there was no worship or reverence to God. You might even say there was no fruit seen in the temple. Typically, when a fig tree had leaves, it should have fruit as well. Allegorically, this temple had leaves. It had millions of people coming to it to sacrifice. And there were priests and Levites tending to its ceremonies. But there was no fruit. There was no worship for God. It had become a legalistic system that was originally intended for people to remember God's grace toward them. These people had put faith in themselves. Jesus, however, wants his disciples to know that nothing can be done when you put faith in yourselves. Instead, Jesus lists a two-step process of how to worship God. Have faith in him and pray to him. Now, we don't believe in a name-it-claim-it gospel. When Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith, doesn't mean you'll get that Maserati you've been eyeing. Our faith in God is based on who he is and what he promises us. He promises salvation for those who repent and believe. When we pray and repent, we are forgiven and saved. God promises us that we do not need to fear because he is with us. When we pray and seek him through his word, does he not comfort us? When we pray, as we have read before in Matthew, when we pray to help us, when we pray to him to help us to share the gospel to our unbelieving neighbor, friend, spouse, or child, he will give us the words and the boldness, boldness needed to do so. God wants us to pray for his will to be done in our lives, not our own. He doesn't promise us a Maserati. Jesus is speaking to the apostles here. Upon Christ's ascension, these men are given the Holy Spirit. They will speak truth into people's lives, and some will believe. God uses these apostles to cause people to be born again. Ladies, this is true for us as well. We can do greater things than wither a fig tree. We can speak life-giving words to each other and unbelievers. I don't want to diminish this passage or scripture. God wants us to bring our needs and cares to him. Give us this day our daily bread. He wants you to pray for the loved one that is sick. He wants you to pray when you are anxious about anything. He wants you to pray when you're feeling lonely. He wants you to pray when life even seems to be going great. Our God is a God of comfort. And you know what is great? As Jesus causes the fig tree to wither, he will also wither this temple. He will spiritually destroy it the day he dies. When his body is slain and the curtain is torn in two, and when he rises on the third day, he will be the new temple. He is the means and the way that we now commune and pray to God. He is why we say in Jesus' name, because he is the only way we have access to God now. He is the final sacrifice. This king is also our priest. He will be the one who intercedes for us to the Father. This king has the authority to do away with the temple. It was his to begin with. And soon we will see he will bring in a new way to worship God. 
So verses 23 to 46 is one section, but we'll pace it out with the way our Bible have it sectioned off. So it's showdown time. It's Jesus versus the temple leader. Let's read verses 23 to 27. And when he entered the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The elders we see, the elders see Jesus walk into the temple like he owns it, which he does. And he starts teaching. It's a pretty bold thing to do after the uproar he just caused. But remember, Jesus is no longer concealing who he is to anyone. The elders march over and pose Jesus with a question. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Who are you to come in here and call the shots? Jesus answers their question with a question. The baptism on John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? It's a bit left field, right? Jesus had just probed their hearts. Will the oh-so-righteous and smartest teachers be able to give the right answer? They discuss it among themselves. If we say John's baptism is from God, then we have failed as religious leaders. But if we say it's from man, then we lose our followers. They are so obsessed with guarding their den to protecting their authority that they have become callous to what is true. So they dodge the question and profess their ignorance. We do not know. And thus, since they are unable to tell where John's ministry is from, they aren't able to tell where Jesus' ministry is from. And so, because the teachers don't answer Jesus' question, Jesus doesn't answer theirs. At least in not in so many words. Or a lot of words. He answers them in three parables, to be exact. However, in chapter 21, we only look at two of them. So let's read verses 28 to 32. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Both of the parables that we will be looking at today is, have the theme of faith and fruit. In the first parable, we see one son who says he won't obey, but then in his actions he does. And the second son who says he will obey their father, but doesn't. He is all talk, but no walk. Both seem a little off, but the main point is that the first son did the will of his father. He obeyed. The text reveals there were two actions that the first son did. Not only did he do the will of the father, but it says in verse 29 that he changed his mind. Something had been spurred that he decided to be obedient. However, with the second son, he spoke a lie. There seems to have never been the intention to do the will of the father. 
So in verse 31, we come to the tax collectors and prostitutes, the first son. Something changed their minds to stop a life of willful disobedience, and it was the witness of John about Jesus. They believed what John said. They repented and believed because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The Messiah was here. They showed faith and fruit. Matthew, being a tax collector, chose to leave his tax booth and follow Jesus. The teachers, on the other hand, heard John's testimony but didn't change their minds. They are like the second son who know how to say the right things, maybe even quote-unquote do the right things. They were people who prayed in the streets, read the Torah. They said that they were servants of God, but their hearts and actions showed they only wanted to serve themselves. The Levites' role was to intercede on the behalf of the Israelites. Instead, they became a snare to the Israelites' worship. We can all be like the second son. We can say with our mouths that we are a follower of God. We can go to church. We can read our Bibles. But if there is no fruit, if there is no real repentance that leads to righteousness or to righteous works, then we are only fooling ourselves. I want to try carefully here. We are saved by grace alone. We only enter the kingdom of heaven on the merit of Jesus' works, death, and resurrection. Nothing that we do. Our faith needs to be in that alone. And that faith should spur a change in our hearts to serve him, to be obedient to God. And what does that look like? It's by loving him with all our heart, mind, and soul, and loving our neighbor. It should be a desire for everyone to know this Jesus because he is the one who leads to everlasting life. So what does this reveal to us about our king? This humble, peaceful, authoritative, authoritative new temple king is also a gracious king. He allows the outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the stay-at-home moms, the working moms, the widows, the spiritually sick, come into the kingdom when they repent. This isn't an exhaustive list. Even the Pharisee, if they repent, will be in the kingdom of heaven. I think of Nicodemus. This is the beauty of the gospel that we believe in. This is the beauty of our king. Let's read verses 33 to 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet.
Jesus gives another parable. Keeping with the analogy of the vineyard, there is now a master and tenants. The master lovingly plants the vineyard, keeps it safe from predators, puts in a shiny new wine press so the workers can reap from the ground, and even builds a place for the tenants to live in. This is a loving and gracious master. The vineyard represents Israel. The tenants, who are seen to be greedy, violent, heartless, ignorant, and disobedient, represent Israelite leaders. They're charged with keeping the vineyard, which is Israel, and giving the fruits to their master. The fruit here can represent the fruit of repentance or the fruit of an obedient life to God. Instead, they try to rob the master. Sound a little familiar? Remember the den of robbers? They try to keep the fruits in the vineyard for themselves. They wanted the Israelites to be obedient to them. The master sends a set of servants, and these can represent the Old Testament prophets. The beating, stoning, and killing represents their persecution. Verse 37 says the master finally decides to send his son in hopes that they will finally do what is right. This part is about Jesus, the son of God. Here he is telling the leaders what they are going to do to him. In verse 38, they plot to kill the son, and in verse 39, they follow through. This is first-degree murder. In verse 40, Jesus asks them another question. What will the master do to the tenants? Without even realizing it, the leaders indict themselves to a miserable death and even foretell what the master is going to do. The vineyard will go to new tenants, people who love and desire to please their master, people who love the son, people producing its fruits, as verse 43 says. The people who enter the kingdom of heaven are born again from a life of willful disobedience. They are people who love God, love what he loves, people who are obedient to him, and from that produce fruit, or good works. When our eyes are fixed on Christ, the object of our faith, we will produce fruit. We cannot do that on our own. In verse 42, Jesus speaks, ending the parable and rightly responding to the leader's answer. He quotes Psalm 118, 23 The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the son, or the stone that they rejected. The leader's rejection that leads to the death of the stone and his resurrection is marvelous in our eyes. But as verse 44 says, it will crush the leaders and anyone who does not believe or marvel at Jesus, the son of God. God, who is the master of the vineyard, is long-suffering. He planted the vineyard and cared for it and sent servants to harvest it. Even when they were persecuted, he sent more. Finally, he sends his own son. What grace. Though he is long-suffering, he is also just, and he will judge and cast out all those who don't choose to love and accept his son. There is no middle ground. You either love him or you hate him. You can either lovingly accept his authority or you can reject it. Those who accept it will enter into the joy of the master. Those who don't will be crushed by the weight of the stone's judgment. They will succumb to a miserable death. Sometimes we want to wash over this because it sounds harsh, but this is truth and this will be a reality. But this is also true. King Jesus is humble, peaceful, our new temple, patient like the Father and just. This king has authority and is worthy of all our thoughts, actions, time, and our heart. He is worthy of all of our worship. So let's worship him now in prayer. 
Lord, we just praise you for the kind of king and master you are. You are worthy of all of our worship and praise. I pray that you help us to keep our eyes on you and off the horizontal. I pray that not only will you deepen a desire in our hearts to bear fruit and continue to be obedient to your word, but that you will continually give us your spirit to guide our wandering hearts. We are fickle, Lord, but you are constant and sure. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and how your plan of redemption always included the cross. This is marvelous in our eyes, Lord. We thank you for him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.